This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Okay, uh, we're going to look at some uh, images Uh, Now, these are images uh, from Israel. I've been there 15 times, and I've taken groups there now five years in a row. This is not a tour of Israel. These pictures are here uh, for your imagination. These are, you know, little pieces of the puzzle. So when you engage uh, with Luke, uh, this should be helpful, okay? So uh, there's pretty many pictures. Uh, There you go. How's that? A face. I'm always wondering about his face. And uh, there's a very Jewish face right there. Uh, apparently, there, this is a, 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 a mummy mask from Egypt, so there's another face. Um, okay, slow down. Do the next one and then, then, then stop. Don't go. There's another one. Uh, but think about this. Um, there, no description of what he looks like. Isaiah says there's nothing in him that we should desire him, so apparently he's not especially handsome. He's not especially ugly, or his, his critics would have said, you know, he's got big ears, or he's got a funny nose, or whatever. Uh, he was a man of color, we would say. Uh, not the auburn-haired, uh, blue-eyed person that uh, most, is in most of our Sunday school literature. Uh, but I say it this way. I, I mean, I, I, I just long to see that face. Uh, you would have passed Jesus on the street, and you wouldn't have looked twice. I, I suggest to you. You would have passed him in the street. You, would, you wouldn't look twice. But I'm always looking for that face. Uh, apparently his voice, there's nothing extraordinary about his voice because no one comments on it. Now he's got some pretty good content, right? Perfect. God's, you know, the words of God. But um, I don't know. I, it was here I got in an argument with a guy. He said, no, I think when Jesus walked down the streets, the dogs wouldn't even bark at him. Maybe that person is, is here again. Um, I don't know, for me, the incarnation, uh, what, I, what I get is, it's just, he's not this six-foot movie star. He's just this ordinary person that you, you pass by on the street, you will look twice. I, I don't know. What do you think? I think so you like that? Okay. Whatever you don't disagree with me, I'm very fragile. Okay. <laughs> Next. Okay, go. Next one. How you like that? There's a little fat baby that looks like a real baby. I love that painting. There's Mary and and a very ordinary kind of Mary. I love that image. There's a great book uh, called The Faces of Jesus. It was written by Frederick Beekner, who is one of the greatest writers we have. And the first verse of that book, or the first sentence of the book said, he had a face. He had a face. And so I know we can't know, but I, I do find it interesting that no one... Uh, it, occur, it didn't occur to anyone to describe what he looked like because apparently there's nothing extraordinary. Okay, next. Uh, that's just a picture I like. The woman drying his feet with her. This has nothing to do with anything. It was just on my computer and I wanted you to see it. Okay, next. <laughs> All right, here's, uh, here's our group having a bonfire on the Sea of Galilee. And that's just an image to, to let you see. There's Sea of Galilee at night. And, uh, and that, you know, they had bonfires. We do know that from John 21, that he built, built a fire. 
So there it is. All those lights wouldn't have been there. That's Tiberias. But that city was there when Jesus was there. And it was a pagan city. All of the big cities in Galilee are pagan cities. They've all got pagan temples. And they're all, you know, uh, not the kind of places that good Jewish people go in general. Yes, ma'am. No, no, no. We're on the other side of the lake. Tiberius is on the other side of the, of, the, of, the, of the lake. We're on the pagan side of the lake. We're on the Gadarene side of the lake. That's the Jewish side of the lake. Okay, next. And this is just a sunset. And, and I, I, this is here for you to see that Jesus' world is an, is an incredibly beautiful world. Galilee is an amazingly beautiful world. Virtually every morning, sunsets are gorgeous and every evening right I mean the the sun sunsets are gorgeous he lives in this beautiful self-contained green world when you think of Galilee just think of a beautiful I mean it's like Asheville you know it's the main flyway between Africa and Asia so I'll show you a minute every kind of bird you can think of flocks of pelicans flocks of storks I saw a flock of storks I mean, come on. You know those, those little green parakeets that cost like $900? Flocks of those. So it's this beautiful self-contained world uh, as opposed to Judea and Jerusalem that's in the middle of the desert. So anyway, that's what that image is for. Just another image. There's a storm coming uh, down from the north. Uh, I just took that out the window of the bus with my cell phone. But yeah, next. Isn't it great having cell phones? There's just another image of the lake. One of the most important things is for you to get in your head the size of the lake. When you're on the shore, if there's a boat on the lake, you can generally see it, which explains why getting away from people on a boat doesn't work for Jesus. He gets on the boat. Have a boat. Mark says, have a boat ready so the people don't push me into the lake, Jesus says. And he'll go to the other side of the lake, and what do they do? Right, they fall around on the store and they're there waiting for he gets there. So it doesn't work. Okay, come with me to a quiet place. We'll get some rest, he says in Mark. And they get there and there's 5,000 people. This is in the north, up uh, close to Caesarea Philippi. Just more beauty. That's just an image of beauty. Next. Got to go quick. That is a coney, rock badger, part of his world. It looks like a Muppet. It looks like you should stick your hand up inside of it and talk. But, uh, you know, they're, they're animals that are part of his world. And, uh, huh? About this big. Rock badger. Rock badger. And they're referred to in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Hyrax. But I know they're called conies or rock badgers. Yeah. Uh, heron. Yeah. Next. Pelicans. Flocks of pelicans. They look like pterodactyls. Next. Next. There are some of those parakeets. You know. Next, Ibex. That's a little more in the north, but uh, uh, keep going. That's in uh, Masada. That's uh, Tristram's Grackle. And they'll look like you see the land right on your hand. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a, an Egyptian vulture. It looked like a, you know, B-52. You know, huge, huge. Next, and a fox. Uh, so all kinds of animals, all kinds of birds. Uh, that's a crow. It's called a, it's called a hooded crow. That's the kind of crows they have. Pretty, prettier than our crow. Okay, so we'll stop right there. Um, yeah, so Jesus lives in this beautiful, self-contained world. Okay? This is uh, one of the excavations of Nazareth. And what, what I'm trying to impress upon you is that almost literally Nazareth is a hole in the ground. 
Nazareth is, uh, I, know, I know the chief, chief excavator is a good friend of mine, and uh, he, he has a museum there, the Church of the Annunciation. He's a wonderful man. And um, I asked him, well, how big was Nazareth? He said it was about as big as the church ground was, maybe 150 people, really small. And you see those kind of holes and depressions in the ground. You build wooden or mud, uh, mud huts sort of over the tops of that. We have these beautiful ruins of Capernaum. We have nothing from Nazareth. No, they've just found their first first century structure. I mean, otherwise, it's, it, it is no place. Okay? Can anything good from Nazareth come from Nazareth? The answer is probably not. Okay, Next. And that's, that's a depression. And that kind of gives you an idea of the kind of place Jesus was born. Uh, the, 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 the sort of the cave that you build the house over the top of. Next, except the wire wouldn't be there. There's, there's another one. There's one that hasn't been covered up. That's actually used by shepherds. See the fire. But that's kind of what the, what the ground does. Okay, next. I've got a bu- couple of these. Yeah, this is a very good example of what, where Jesus would have been born. In the, the, the space underneath the house where the animals are kept. Not in. There aren't, G- Jews don't do inns. That's not a part of Judaism. So no room at the inn and all the, the innkeeper's wife. That's not, sorry, that's not biblical. There's no room for him in the, in the Cataluma in the guest room. So because he can't stay in the guest room, they stay down underneath the house where the animals are kept. And that's where he's born. That's where the Son of God is born. You know. Okay, here, there's a reconstruction of Capernaum for you. Just to give you an idea, we're going to look at some pictures of Capernaum now, which is really Jesus' town. That when the Bible says he comes to his own town, it means Capernaum. He relocates. Next. And there, there's some of it. Black basalt. Let me tell you, Jesus lives in a black basalt world. The buildings are all made of black basalt. And it's, it feels like iron. It's volcanic, very, very rough. You see in the foreground there, there's a, a grinding stone, a millstone. There are so many of those things in Capernaum, someone finally figured out, well, this is an area where they, they manufactured them because they're way more grinding stones than anybody would ever use, right? So well, there's a lot of those. But that's, that's, the, that's what Capernaum looks like. Next, this is Peter's house. They built a church over the top of it. Those ugly mud walls are part of the church. But those boulders to the right there, those are the actual walls. It, Jesus was in, within the walls. If, if we have... If, we, if anything, we can point at anything and say, that's Peter's house, we can point at this and say, that's Peter's house. More, there's a couple more, I think. Oh, and that's what it would have looked like. This is a little bit later a period, but basically that's what it looks like inside. Uh, there's more of that black basalt world. Uh, yeah, black basalt. Next. Okay, this that looks weird, doesn't it? Um, the, the, the black basalt... That's the foundations of the synagogue that was donated by the Roman centurion in Luke 7. Okay? The white marble on top is a synagogue that was built on top of it. Okay? So bottom one is, you know, first century. The top one is third or fourth century. And that one of the new ideas, and my academic reason for embracing is that I really want this to be true. <laughs> but the, the, the white marble uh, synagogue is a Christian synagogue. Now, wrap your mind around that. Some Christian Jews built a synagogue on top of this first century synagogue. And one of the reasons they believe it is, look, they left every stone there that they could leave. And they actually shaped the marble around them. To, look at the next one. 
Go to the next picture. There's the stone, there's the step. They cut the step so it doesn't touch the original step. So the archaeologists say there seems to be this reverence for this site. So they're starting to think this may be, we have Christian synagogues in the late first century. I mean, wrap your mind around that. But Capernaum was a center of, for, for Christian Jews. Okay, there's another synagogue. That's in Chorazin. We know Jesus was there because he cursed it, but we don't know what he did there. That's part of the uh, $100 that we don't have. But see, black basalt. Those are the walls inside of Peter's house. So those are some actual, you know, and again, I'm not, we're not collecting chill bumps, but I think that's a pretty cool idea. We don't go to Israel to collect chill bumps. That's an anchor from a first century boat. Yeah, cool. That's a blue screen. Kind of, <laughs> that's you kind of blank. Okay, next. That can't be all of them because I got a whole bunch more. There you go. This is, uh, 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 Sean Connery was shooting a movie and he accidentally floated into this. <laughs> no, this, this, this is for you to get the boat in your head. You need, right? You need this in your head. And that's the boat. That's the size. Um, you see how far the, the gunnels, the, the rails are from the water. When Matthew talks about Peter walking on the water, he describes Peter climbing down. So it's a pretty big boat. And it also, uh, one of the questions that we have when we're translating the New Testament, there's a word for pull up the boat. We don't really know how to translate it. And so people have thought, well, the idea is they pull this thing up on the shore. But that's apparently not, uh, not what, what happened. In uh, 1986, the Sea of Galilee w- reached historic lows, and they found 16 harbors that they didn't know were there for a century. And so the idea in the Gospels is now, with your imagination, when they get to a place... They tie off the boat at the harbor. No one's pulling that boat up on, an, on a, a shore of, uh, of, of basalt rock. So, yeah. Next. And that's actually the Sea of Galilee. That's a, <laughs> okay, here's, uh, here's Jerusalem. Now we're getting to the temple. That's uh, you know, an approximation, the best we have, of, uh, of Herod's temple. Um, what can I say? It would have been one of the seven wonders of the world had Herodotus, you know, who, who came up with that list, had, had he uh, um, come up with it, had he been alive then, he'd been dead for a long time. Uh, whoa, 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 go back. Dude, okay. Um, this, this gate in the front, is the, it's actually a double gate, he got it wrong, uh, but this is where Jesus enters in. There's the colonnade, and that whole enclosure is 35 acres. The fact that Simeon and Anna find Jesus and Joseph and Mary is a miracle in and of itself. I mean, that packed with, you know, 50,000 people, and, you've, and they've run into each other, it's a miracle. Um, I, I wish I had a laser pointer. You got a laser pointer on you? Just jump. Yeah, just jump. Give me that stick. Here, give me your Here, stick. There you go. Yeah. Okay, watch this. Here, Stephen, let me borrow your chair. No. You see that, see that little low line right there? Can you see it? Paul refers to that as the dividing wall of hostility. That's the, that's the line that Jew, uh, Gentiles can't pass. And in, in excavation, they've actually found a stone that says any Gentile who goes past this point will do so at the risk of his own life. So that's what that is. So you got, you know, court of the Gentiles is that big court. So that's where you got the marketplace, right? That Jesus tears up twice, right? Tears it up twice. The bookends of the ministry of Jesus are tearing up the temple, by the way. Sidebar. 
I'm with a, I'm with a group of Mennonites uh, talking about Caesarea Philippi, you know, blathering on and on and on about Caesarea Philippi and the temple to Pan and the temple to Augustus and all this stuff. And this sweet uh, Mennonite brother, I've gotten to be friends with him, his name's Adam. Adam says, he goes, hold on. You telling me Jesus went to a pagan town? I said, yeah. Jesus was walking around a pagan town full of pagan temples? I said, yeah. He said, and the only temple he ever tore up was his own? Isn't that good? Um, now, I want you to look. See, see on the right there, see those two towers? That's the Antonia Fortress. Uh, the Romans... Uh, obviously uh, on purpose built that there. Uh, they, they stationed soldiers up on top of those towers to keep an eye on what was going on. Uh, there's a story actually, Roman soldiers had sort of a kilt that they wore. Uh, there's a story of a soldier on one of those towers mooning the crowd and there was a riot. What? Oh, you got a pointer? Ah, thank you. Ah, I was always afraid of the ball. There we go. Uh, Cool. Oh, yeah, this can be dangerous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so he's standing up here. And, I mean, thousands of people died. There was a riot. But when I said that the, the vestments of the high priest are kept there, that's where they've got to come from the temple over, and can we please have our vestments so we can have Passover? This colonnade is covered. These are 30 feet high, these things are. And I'll show you in a minute the capitals of one of those. There's one left. But during Passover, imagine a Roman soldier on horseback behind each one of those columns. See, that's Jesus' world. We're going to keep, because what's, the, what's the, the worst thing we can imagine? A riot, right? A riot. Um, yeah, this is one of Herod's other palaces back here. But anyway, this is Solomon's colonnade. Uh, next one. Say again? The the, oh, say, sorry, go back. Yeah, I've got my laser now. <laughs> it was right, shaky hands, right there. That's it. That's the dividing wall. You do not go. And so what have you heard all your whole life? The Jews had to get uh, Jesus to the Romans because the Romans had taken away the power of life and death from the Jews. Not strictly true because it, they could execute someone in the temple, and they did. They did do that. Okay, next. <clears throat> there are a lot of assumptions that we've been raised with and, and uh, it's not that it, you know, we need to get clearer and clearer. Next. Okay, I'll spell out words. Okay, this is, okay. okay. Are, we, are we already to these pictures? We're almost done. Uh, I spent the day with these guys fishing on the Sea of Galilee. This is Yosef. Uh, I don't know if this is true or not. Someone told me he's like the only guy that's licensed to actually fish. On Sea of Galilee. But these are tilapia. These are St. Peter's fish. Um, we, we came in, and in order, in order for them to be kosher, uh, the rabbi has to inspect the fish to make sure the scales are okay and that kind of thing. And that day, the rabbi was throwing a bunch of the fish back in, and he was really mad. Go to the next picture. I think I got a picture of him. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Okay. Folks, that is Simon Peter. Right there. No, I'm not kidding. That's Simon Peter. He was, he was, he was really upset. He was really upset smoking. Um, and I kept laughing and going, you're Peter. You're Simon Peter. He didn't think that was funny. Next. 
There he is. And these are these little sardines that grow or that, that, that uh, live in the lake. They're, they're separating the fish out. And one of the last times we were here, was anybody in the group remember? We went by their boat and this guy held up this catfish. It was like five feet long. I didn't know there were fish that big in the Sea of Galilee. But uh, so here he is now. Now, 10 years later, I've got another picture of him. Much better picture. No, that's not him. All right. <laughs> Did you miss it? Uh, there, there's another picture of him in there. Oh, well, sorry. Uh, no, no, go back, go back. I, I'm just going to tell you who these people are. Just go to that one. This is Moshe. He, 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 this is just to let you know kind of the, the tone of, of what's going on. Moshe has a, a shop called the Shorshim Shop. He is not a Christian. He's, he is very, um, very, sometimes I think very close we were talking about Hesed the other day, or the last time I was there, and I said, really the only way you can understand Hesed is if it's incarnated, if it's, if it's lived out. And he goes, well, that's your guy, right? I'm talking about Jesus, that's your guy, right? But we, if we take our group, uh, if, if there are enough people that want to do it, he will lock the door, he will close his shop and set out chairs and, and answer questions as long as we ask questions. He's a precious, precious man. Next. This is just some people that are really special. This is Ruth. Ruth has a restaurant in Bethlehem, and she's Palestinian. And she is absolutely, it's like your mom's taking care of you. Anybody remember, anybody remember us eating there? This is my favorite place to eat in Bethlehem. I don't know if the food's any good or not, but I like, I like her. Next. <laughs> this is the priest at Lazarus' tomb, Joseph. And that, that smile says it all. Okay. Oh, this is our Kamal. This is our bus driver. Yeah. Uh, also Palestinian, his father owned a banana farm uh, in Tel-, Tel Aviv the night before the Israelis came in. That night they came in, they said, you got to leave now, not in the morning, now. And uh, he loves, he takes care of uh, Christ- uh, little children, he takes care of children in the camps. And he is an absolutely precious guy. That's us at, the, at a hookah bar. <laughs> you see me? <laughs> Here's your... I'm afraid to throw it. I'm no good at throwing. Okay, now here it comes. Here it comes. Ready? There you go. Okay. All right. So there's some pictures for you. I thought I had more. Okay. Good. We got lots of time. 840. So let's, let's talk. Uh, let's get you ready for a read through tonight because that's what you're going to do tonight. You're going to read Luke tonight. I'm not kidding. Huh? What? Yeah. Let me do it this way, okay, because we, you know this information. I'm not saying you meticulously read every word. I'm just saying work through Luke. Work through Luke. And I'm going to give you some things to look for. We're going to talk about some of the major themes just to, to get you started, okay? Don't be afraid. I won't hurt you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, about who, Luke, who Luke is uh, we, we know a lot about Luke. We actually do. Paul says he's a doctor. Colossians 4.14, it refers to him. This is all in your notes. You don't have to write this down if you don't want to. Um, and the, I think one of the most important references to Luke is 2 Timothy 4.11, when everyone has deserted Paul, but, but Luke, only Luke is with me. Paul's in prison in the, we think in the Mamertine prison in, in, uh, in uh, Rome, which is a hole in the ground, literally, it's a, it's a well with a hole in the top that they drop you through the hole. That's, that's it. And Luke, Luke uh, is with him. Um, 
And one of the things we do if we engage with our imaginations, we always stop and we ask what facts mean. It's not enough to say, okay, Luke was a doctor, you know, I put that on the test, you answer the question, you get an A. But that's not, we need to do more than that. What does it mean that he was a doctor? What would you expect from a doctor? That's what we have to do. We, we ask what the facts mean, okay? So, you know, what kind of things would you expect from a doctor? Well, you would ex- my father was a doctor, so I, I know how doctors think. Um, he's really interested in healing. And there are a lot more details. When you're looking through things tonight, look for that. He's really interested in the details of healings uh, that, that Jesus does. Only Luke talks, us, talks to us about the man who had dropsy. Okay, I looked it up. I'm not interested in dropsy. It's icky. Uh, but Luke is very interested in this. Luke uses medical terms when he doesn't use medical terms, and that's what my dad used to do. Um, my earliest memory of my father, he was hanging up a picture, and he used his reflex hammer to hammer the nail into the <laughs> drywall. Why? Because that's the only hammer he had. Right? My dad's a doctor. He doesn't have a tool kit with hammers. He's got a rubber hammer that he hits you on the knee with. And that's his hammer. Okay? Luke's the same way. He uses medical words when he doesn't need medical words, but those are the words he uses. 700 words are found in Luke that aren't found anyplace else in the New Testament. Okay? So when, when uh, Zechariah asked for a tablet to write down his name as John, right? Because he still can't talk. It's the technical word for a prescription tablet. Okay? John the Baptist baptizes for the remission of sin. And it's the same word we use for the remission of cancer. So he, he uses medical words uh, when he doesn't need medical words, which I think is pretty, pretty interesting. And you know, look for that. Look for that when you're reading tonight. Okay, w- one of the things that I'm, I'm bringing to the party that... Um, well, I've carefully autopsied everything from the beginning. The demon convulsed him. Peter's mother has a great fever. Um, examine my, 938, Jesus examined my son. Um, he lets us know that Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane lost his ear lobe. It wasn't his ear that Peter chopped off. It was his, his little ear. So Peter wasn't going like, Peter wasn't aimed for his ear. <laughs> Peter, didn't, Peter didn't go like this. Peter went like this. And Malchus turns his head, and at the last minute, he just loses his earlobe. And in the confusion, Jesus heals without anybody no- noticing it. Because if they had seen that Peter had done what he had done, they, none of them would have left that garden alive. Right? So Jesus heals it in the confusion. Okay? Um, he, Luke lets us know it was, it was his little ear. Uh, but here, here's kind of a, a, new, a relatively new idea. Uh, because... Uh, Several years ago, uh, I got interested. I was, I was discipled in an African-American church. And in our church, when we prayed, we called Jesus Master. And I asked our pastor, Denny Denson, I said, where does that come from? Because I grew up in a white church. We never called him Master, right? And he said, that's from slavery. He said, African slaves called Jesus Master to let their earthly masters know they weren't Master. It was Jesus who was Master. And so I just sort of ran this idea of slavery in the New Testament and wrote a book that has sold literally tens of copies. <laughs> Called A Better Freedom. It's about slavery in the New Testament. Um, when, after my mother died, sales abruptly just dropped off. I don't know. <laughs> but I was looking at slavery in the New Testament and how many people's identity, of course, the identity of Israel is in slavery. 
God keep, you know, he keeps telling them, you remember, you were slaves in Egypt. God keeps reminding them. That's why they're supposed to be kind, because they were slaves in Egypt. Okay. So, uh, but, but everyone's identity is a slave identity. Even Jesus, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, he, he came in the form of a doulos, slave, not servant. Doulos, slave. Mary falls down in front of the angels, and, and she says, behold, the slave of the master. Dulane is the feminine form of the uh, doulos. Um, Peter. Paul, James, Jude, they all identify themselves as slaves to Christ. It's their identity. So slavery identity is a big deal. So I'm working through all of these unreadable, this is what I do for you. I read these unreadable articles and books and make hay out of it. That's my job. So I'm reading uh, uh, Westermann's Slave Systems of Antiquity, and he's describing slaves. And one of the things he said was most slaves in the first century most doctors in the first century were slaves. I go, hmm. And later on, he's describing slave names. There, there are a couple of different ways that slaves are named uh, in, in the first century. The first was to name a slave by a, a characteristic that you hope they would have. Uh, and so in the letter Philemon, we have Onesimus. What does Onesimus mean? Useful. You see that? I mean, it makes you just want to smack Philemon. But, uh, so he names him. Oh, I hope you're going to be useful. See, Onesimus. Uh, the most common slave name in the first century was Philocurios, master lover. Yeah, you just want to smack him. The other way uh, slaves were named was, here's your big word for the day. They were given a hypocoratic name, a hypocorism, H-Y-P-O-C-O-R-I-S-M. It's in your notes. You don't have to write it down. And that's a big word for nickname. Why use a little word that everybody can understand when you can use a big word that nobody understands? So God forbid I'm a slave, I'm a slave owner in the first century. My name's Michael. What do I name my slave? Mike. Luke. Hear it? Luke. It's a shortened form of the name Lucian. And Paul has a relative named Lucian. He refers to him twice. How cool is that? Huh? Um, Demas is a, is a slave. He's actually, com- he's teamed up with, with Luke. Demas is short for Demetrius. It's a hypochorism. It's a shortened form of, of another name. So he was purchased by a guy named Demetrius and given the name Demas. Okay. Hypochoratic. Impress your friends, right? Oh, your name. That sounds like a hypochorism. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that, that, that and a couple of other little, uh, even, even less interesting pieces of evidence, uh, I can do this all night, um, leads me to believe that Luke is a slave. I'm absolutely convinced he's a slave. I think he was purchased by Paul's relative Lucian and given to Paul to take care of Paul, whatever this thorn in the flesh was, whether it was blindness or malaria or whatever it was he had wrong with him. And that, I know that I, I suggest to you, I'll not take a bullet for any of this, but it really makes things make sense because here's the main thing I want for you to look, look for tonight. And this comes from the slave, uh, from him being a slave. The primary thing Luke is interested in is the fact that the world has been turned upside down by Jesus. When I was writing this book, um, I, there are no slave narratives from the first century, but we have a, a whole library of wonderful slave narratives from uh, American slavery, people like Frederick Douglass, Douglass and Booker T. Washington. And there's a, there's a famous story uh, of, of, a, of an African slave after the Civil War. 
He comes uh, back up to Kentucky where he had been a slave. He's riding a horse, which is, you know, one, one, you know everybody else is walking. He's riding a horse. He comes up to the this, this plantation where he used to be a slave, and his old owner is standing next to a split rail fence. You know what that is, split rail fence? Okay. The famous statement that the slave made, he's sitting on the horse, and he looks down at his master, and he says, the bottom rail is on top now. The world's been turned upside down. That's the theme of Luke. I read that story and all, all my bells started ringing. The bottom rail is on top. That's what, Luke, that's what Luke is interested in. People who should understand what's happening never understand it. And people who shouldn't understand it always understand it. It's, once you see it when you're reading through Luke tonight, it will blow your mind. First example, um, uh, Zach, uh, 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 Zachariah and Mary. That's the first two. It's usually a man and a woman, by the way. Who, who is Zachariah? Priest. Priest? Okay, where is he? In the temple. In the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but he's in the holy place. A temple, a, a priest in the temple. Who's he talking to? Gabriel. Okay. Don't you think he ought to get it? I mean, come on. <laughs> See? I don't know if that's a yes or a no. A priest in the holy place talking to Gabriel. Does he get it? No, we'll look at this tomorrow. We'll look at the passage tomorrow. Doesn't get it. Okay. Next scene, Mary. Okay, probably 15 years old. In Nazareth, where the holes in the ground that I showed you, the mud huts. Okay, and here's a little bit of background that you need to know. In first century Judaism, women were very marginalized. I know you've heard this, but trust me, uh, women were not supposed to get anything better that the law be burned than given to a woman. Every time a man looks at a woman, he inherits Gehenna, very much like Islam now. Women, uh, there was a group of Pharisees called the blue, bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Whenever they saw a woman, they closed their eyes and they ran into things. I, I'm not making this up because the sin, it can't be my fault. I'm righteous. So it's got to be you. It's, it's you. It's your fault, Right? So now the, the Muslims, they you know, cover women up and abuse them in all kinds of horrible ways. In Judaism, women were just marginalized, except for the, Torah, except for the protection that the Torah you know, extended to them. So here's, a, here's, a, here's this girl who's not really supposed to get anything, uh, understand anything, and Gabriel comes to her with a much more unbelievable message, right? At least the Zechariah, at least there's a biological It's within the realm of biological possibility. I know they're old, but I mean, still, what he, the message he has for Mary is impossible, right? He, he, but he tells her what's going to happen and what's her immediate response. Behold the slave and the master. Luke's interested in that. Her identity is a slave identity, which I think, by the way, she passed down to Jesus. I think part of Jesus' self-understanding as a slave comes through his mother. I think he understands himself because that's how she understood herself. But we can go right through Luke. Uh, Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman. Simon the Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. Knows his Bible better than all of us put together. Trust me. He knows it forwards and backwards. Every letter. Okay. Uh, Jesus tells a. Uh, I mean, the, and, uh, and then the, there's the sinful woman. Who who in that story? Who in that story gets it? The sinful woman gets it. Right. The woman gets it. The religious man doesn't get it. Jesus has to tell him a parable to kind of help him. He doesn't condemn him. He's trying to help him, right? Uh, but we can go right through. 
It even happens in the parables. I mean, the Good Samaritan, right? Who gets it? The Samaritan. Who doesn't get it? Priest and Levite. You see this? I mean, once you start seeing this, it's just all through Luke. And I submit to you, this comes from the fact that he's a slave. And he is very excited about the fact that the world's been turned upside down. In fact, only Luke tells us a story of Jesus. Uh, Matthew quotes a verse, but Luke tells us the story. Uh, Jesus, Luke is excited about this because Jesus is excited about this. Let me just say this. I think it's in Luke 10. Luke says, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and you've revealed them to little children. See, Jesus is filled with joy that the world's being turned upside down. Now, I'm not completely in line with this yet, but that's one of the things I really want to integrate into the way I understand the world. I kind of like the world the way it is, you know. I'm not so sure I want to turn up, you know. Majority culture people tend to be that way. Okay, so that's, uh, that's, that's Luke. That's, uh, let me catch myself up. I got away from my notes. Who is Luke? Did that. Uh, very important that he's not an eyewitness. He tells us that in the opening statement. So when you're looking at Luke tonight, one of the things I want you to look at or think about is when you read a specific story, where did he get that? He's not an eyewitness. So when you read the nativity stories in Luke, he knows what Mary is thinking. He knows she treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. He says that twice about Mary. In the, in the nativity stories, Joseph does not open his mouth. Mary does all the talking. Jesus, 12 years old in the temple, only Luke has that story. Mary does all the talking. Joseph keeps his mouth shut. Joseph doesn't want to say something that might end up in the Bible later. He's wound up a little bit, right? (laughs) Best just not say anything. I mean, you've been entrusted with raising the Messiah and you lose him for three days. I mean, what have we done? So anyway, the idea is that Luke talked to Mary, the nativity, the, the, the eyewitness for the nativity sections in the Gospel of Luke is almost certainly Mary. Now, come on. It couldn't be any better than that. Right? Matthew, I think, gives us Joseph. Joseph is, does all the talking. He's the focus in Matthew. But Luke gives us Mary, and that's very consistent with Luke, right? He's interested in women you know, and, and uh, very supportive of, of women. So he's not an eyewitness, uh, which I think is... Uh, Interesting. I have a quote here from Eusebius um, who says that whenever Paul, three times Paul refers to his gospel, Romans 2.16, 16.25, and 2 Timothy 2.8, Eusebius, early third century, said that that meant Luke. When Paul says, you know, when you know my gospel, because, uh, because Paul had this connection with Luke. I don't know. Do with that if you want to. I, would, I definitely wouldn't take a bullet for that. But it's an interesting idea. Um, let me see if I got any more of these amaze. Uh, oh, okay. This, let's look at the next theme. Uh, gospel of amazement. How about that? Am I going too fast or is this too disjointed? I feel a little disjointed. My blood sugar spiking. My wife will say, cheer down, Mike, cheer down. Let's talk a little bit about the, the amazement, and I want you to look for that, too, as you're reading. Look for astonished, amazed, fear. It's a, a, there, there's, I think there are four words there in your notes that can be translated amazement. The way, the way I, I say it, um, Luke exhausts the language of amazement. 
Okay, that's a fact. Okay, that's a fact. I did, I counted the words. Okay, and I did. What does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, think about that. Here's a person who wasn't an eyewitness. He talks to eyewitnesses. And I, I suggest to you that the consistent testimony of the people Luke talked to was that they were amazed. He talks to people and what he keeps getting again and again and again is, you know, it blew my mind. Let me give you a kind of, I think this is in your notes as well. Zachariah's friends are amazed. Uh, the shepherds are amazed. The people who hear the shepherds are amazed. Everyone is amazed at Jesus' answers. His parents are astonished. His hometown is amazed. In Capernaum, they're amazed at his authority. It goes on and on and on. The disciples are amazed at the first miraculous catch in Luke 5. The people are amazed at the healing of the paralytic. Um, and an interesting question is, for me, is all these people are amazed. When's Jesus amazed? Right? And there's this, it's my favorite story in all of Luke. There's, there's this one, anybody know the story? Centurion. Jesus is amazed at the centurion, finally. Why? Because the centurion is willing to ask for what he doesn't deserve. And that amazes Jesus. It's really cool. We'll look at that tomorrow. I will beat that horse to death tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, my note says, <coughs> there are five Greek words uh, that, are trans that can be translated amazed, in including phobos, which means fear. Um, and Luke is the only person that uses all of them, and he often uses two at once. Um, okay. One of the things that I really can't understand is, I have no explanation for, is that Luke seems to be interested in music, uh, and, and, and particularly in the nativity. Everyone starts singing. Uh, Simeon and, and uh, uh, Mary and the angels, not saying or singing, you know. It's, it's musical, it's lyrical. Whether there's music involved or not, it's lyrical. I don't think he got that from Paul. Paul doesn't strike me as a terribly musical person, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but that's something I'm still, I need help on that. But that's one of the uniquenesses of Luke. And remember what we do. We, we ask, we look at what's unique, and we try to find, okay, why is Luke just interested in that? How does that fit in with things? I've read articles that talk about the fact that it's connected to a slavery and that slaves, you know, are, have been traditionally, historically interested in music. I don't know. That doesn't ring any bells. Doesn't ring any bells with me. Okay. Life situation. Okay, let's talk a little bit about his connection with Paul. Um. I already told you that um, the structure of the Gospel of Luke, it's structured around the great central section, which is 951 to 1814. 951 starts, and Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. Okay, that's nine. Ten chapters, they're, they're traveling through. Mark tells this story in five verses. Mark is not interested in this story. Luke is very interested in this story, Okay. Uh, and, and if the brother were talking before about the trajectory of Jesus' ministry, I think we need to cipher this into our understanding of the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. Because what happens is nine, Peter makes his confession, the Caesarea Philippi confession. And it's not until that confession has been made that they go. 
You know, who do people say I am? Blah, 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 blah. But how about, how about you? And have you ever noticed Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Jesus, Peter doesn't say we say. Peter says you are. You are the Christ. And Jesus blesses him. Blessed are you because man didn't show that to you. God showed that to you. Okay. And so now that it's come out of Jesus' mouth who he is, because they've been wondering, obviously wondering and talking about this, uh, he begins to explain to them what Messiah means, and it's not what any of them expected, right? Who is the Messiah? The Messiah, for most Jews, is the person who's going to come and kill all the Romans. That he is going to die for the Romans. Trust me, nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. We were speaking in, in, uh, in, in the supper about, you know, kind of amazed that, that, that people didn't get it. Well, sometimes you can look at the gospel and, and I can't believe any of them got it because they did not see that one coming. But in, in, in chapter 9, Peter makes his confession. Jesus establishes that he is the Messiah. And then Luke says, he began to explain to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be crucified. And from 9 to 18, that long journey to Jerusalem, and, every, and you'll see this tonight as you're reading. As they're walking along, about every couple of paragraphs it will say, and they entered that town. And as they were walking along, you'll see this, and it doesn't start until chapter 9. And it ends in 18 when they finally get to Jerusalem. But he is in ever-increasing detail, he's telling them exactly what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be bound, that he's going to be spat upon, that he's going to be crucified, and on the third day, raised again, and they never heard third day raised again. When he said crucified, they stopped listening. Bill called it selective listening. You know, you tell your, you tell your three-year-old, I'll give you a nickel if you clean your room. What do, you, what do they hear? I'll give you a nickel. They stop hearing, stop listening when you say clean your room. When Jesus said crucified, they stopped listening. In fact, at one point along the way, uh, it, when he talked about being raised from the dead, the disciples are discussing what being raised from the dead might mean. So they're having this, it's interesting, they're having this discussion along the way. And what I want us to do as we engage with Luke is sort of engage with the disciples as well. I mean, um, try to imagine what it's like. You've been with this man and seen the things he's done, and now it's like he's, it's, he's talking like a madman. And let's go so we can die with him, right? Thomas, isn't that, Thomas said that. So they've got this dilemma of the fact that it's going to cost them everything too. And he says that. You're gonna, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Hmm, wonder what pick up your cross means. wonder what metaphor that is. Well, it's not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. So I want you to engage with that. So I think it's interesting that a companion of Paul um, uh, is, tells the story of Jesus uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a travel narrative. Okay, Paul was the apostle to the... What would you expect then? I mean, that's an interesting fact, but what would you expect then? What does that mean? Hmm? Yeah, Luke is very interested in the Gentile mission, way more than anyone else. And again, once you put these things together in your head, you'll hear a verse and you'll go, that sounds like Luke, right? Oh, amazement. Oh, that sounds like Luke. What's the story about a woman or a widow? Well, that sounds like Luke. Only Luke, only Luke tells widow stories. Okay? It's a story about, you know, reaching out to the Gentiles. Well, that's Luke because he's, uh, he's interested. Uh, the, ge the genealogy of Luke goes all the way back to Adam. 
Because he's very interested in that. Uh, the angels speak of all the peoples. Uh, Simeon says that Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. See? Very, that's only in Luke. Only Luke quotes uh, Simeon. The story of the Good Samaritan. It's only in Luke. The faith of centurion. Only in Luke. These are all Gentiles. The sending out of the 72. Only Luke tells us about the 72. And the, the idea of their mission is that they're the ones, there are 72 nations in Judaism. Uh, the idea is that they're going to go out to all the nations. Okay? Only Luke. Um, okay. How about, uh, I, I said this before, but let me just say it. And again, I think this is in your notes anyway. Uh, there is this emphasis on the innocence of Jesus. Uh, and I think this is again tied to this idea that he is a companion of, of Paul. And these, this is a document that's a cover letter for a collection of the, of the letters of Paul that are submitted at his trial. Only in Luke, Pilate says Jesus is innocent three times. He does not, he, Pilate does not want any part of this. We'll, we'll look at Pilate later on this week. And uh, they're, they're, the, the most famous unnamed person in the, in the New Testament we'll look at. And he's connected with Pilate. Uh, but Pilate does not want to have anything to do with him. Herod sends him back, says he's innocent. The thief on the cross, the guy he's hanging next to, says he's innocent. The, the Roman centurion uh, says he's innocent. So there's this focus on the innocence of Jesus. And we all know he's innocent. But Luke is particularly interested, and we think that may be a connection uh, back, to, back to Paul. Uh, and finally... Is that because Luke was trying to declare Paul's innocence? Hmm? Is that to declare Paul's innocence? Yeah, yeah, he said, is that to declare Paul's innocence? Yeah, if, the, if, this, if Luke is used to submit at, at Paul's trial to try to look, make, say that Paul's innocence. See, what Luke is trying to do is to tell to the Romans, we are no threat to you. That's something that was very important. And that, that's what Josephus did. Josephus had to go to Vespasian and say, I am no threat to you, right? Uh, after Jerusalem was destroyed, the great, one of the great rabbis who, who reformed Judaism, his name is Johannan ben Zakkai, he goes to Titus, the Roman general, and says, we are the Jews. We are no threat to you, okay? And I think that's, that's part of what Luke is saying. Uh, Jesus is really no threat to the Romans. We are no threat to you, of course, Eventually, the Holy Roman Empire. We kind of did our thing, didn't we? Um, and finally, uh, this business about the Pharisees. And to me, this is one of the most fascinating uh, uh, uniquenesses of the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees are not necessarily negative in Luke. Uh, three times Jesus has meal fellowship with Pharisees. Chapter uh, 7 10 and 14, I think, are the three. Chapter 7 is, is one of my favorite stories. It's Jesus is reclining at Simon the Pharisee's house, and the woman comes in and weeps in her, her tears. She's the, the person who has been falsely identified with Mary Magdalene, the most misidentified person in the New Testament. It's not Mary Magdalene. Um, but Simon the Pharisee and Jesus have a very congenial meal. Jesus is helping Simon understand what he needs to understand because he doesn't get it. He tells him a parable. Uh, and I told you in chapter, I think it's chapter 14, uh, Jesus is observing where the Pharisees are sitting at the meal. So he's at a banquet and apparently there's no name calling or no, no fights or anything. And he ends up giving them very friendly, I think, very friendly advice about, look, when you go to a, 
a banquet. Sit in the low place. I mean, you guys usually want to sit in the highest place. Don't do that. Sit in the low place, so they'll ask you to move up. See, that's friendly advice. And if, if you're like me, I always read that as negative, like there was a fight going on. But if you read it, just don't read it in Sunday school voice. Just read it. And you realize, no, there's, this isn't a fight. This is a friendly meal. But chapter 10, I think it's chapter 10, the middle one is not good. He calls them bruises of vipers and he pronounces the woes. So Luke is not, he's not uh, changing, uh, you know, he's not manipulating uh, the truth. He's, uh, he's uh, just giving us the other side. Uh, okay. Gee, I'm almost done. What time am I supposed to be done? No, not nine, eight, 40. I got 20 minutes. I wrote it on my hand, but it's worn off. Uh, let's see. I don't, I don't think there's any, I'm, I'm kind of out. Let me, let me look. Those issues in the parables. Oh, let's talk about parables quickly, 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 quickly. Oh, there's no, there's two or three things that I haven't said. I got good, good, good. Luke is, uh, more parables in Luke than any of the other gospels. He's very interested. Most of the parables are slave parables. And guess what? The slaves are always the good guys. Who are the bad guys? Hired hands. The slaves are the ones who, who go back to the vineyard again and again and again and die for their master, right? The hired hands are the ones who run off and leave the sheep because they just do it for money. So the slaves are the good guys. Slaves are the good guys. But what's unique about Luke's uh, portrayal of the parables that you don't have, in, in Matthew, Matthew will string, Matthew who collects the sayings of Jesus, Matthew will collect a string of parables for us. Thank you, Matthew. You know, yay, Matthew. Luke shows us parables working. He's more interested in parables. So he'll tell us that there was a crowd of people and there were some sinners and there were some Pharisees there. And so Jesus told this story. And it's the story of uh, the prodigal son. And, and it, it gives you an appreciation for the elegance. I, I suggest to you that I know he's the son of God. I'll take a bullet for that. And I mean, all those theological things I, I assent to and I will, I will fight for. But I suggest to you that Jesus is an elegant thinker. He's an elegant thinker because on the spot, he can tell a story that relates to every individual person in the crowd. I mean, who does that? Who does that? So he tells the story of the prodigal son. And uh, parables work, we'll, and we'll look at all this later, but parables work uh, two or three ways. The first way they work is through identification. He tells the story on purpose so the different people in the crowd will identify with different people in the parable. So if you're uh, a sinner and you hear the parable of the prodigal son, who are you going to identify with? Prodigal son. They're going, that's me. I did that. I blew my possession. I ate pig food yesterday. Yeah, I know this guy. That's me. If you're a Pharisee, who are you going to identify with? Older brother. That's me. I've been working all my life. I've never done anything wrong. See, it's, it's elegant. It's elegant. And what happens? There's the, it, the world's turned upside down. The person who should get it doesn't get it. I've been slaving. The, the, the question of the prodigal son is, who's the real slave? The prodigal comes back and says, look, I'll work for you. I'll be your slave. And the father says, no, you're my son. Here's the ring. Here's the shoes. It's Hesed. Here's the party. Here's the band. You know, it's always over the top. And then the older son is the one who's the slave. I've been slaving all my life. So, um, so Jesus shows us parables working. 
uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells us that a scribe comes up and has this question, and so Jesus tells this parable. Only Luke does that. The other Gospels don't do that. Uh, the parable that in chapter 7 that Jesus tells to Simon the Pharisee, we know the story, we know it's at a party, we know who's there, right? And, and, and you know, one person owes a lot, the other person just owes a little. Who do you think Simon's going to identify? Well, he's the guy that barely owes anything at all because he's righteous, see? And then lo and behold, Jesus turns it all around. The person who's been forgiven more loves more. Pretty cool. See, Simon has the answer in his head. The parable moves the answer from his head to his heart. That's what parables do. They integrate. But if you don't listen, you are not going to get it. If you don't engage with what Jesus is saying, you are not going to get it. It is not simple didactic teaching, and that's the nature of his parables. And uh, as, you're reading, uh, as you're reading tonight, uh, you'll see that. Okay? Um, there's one more that we, I don't know if we want to get into it, and I can't remember what verse it is. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yes, I know I wrote a book on it. Yes, I know I should know the numbers, but I don't. <clears throat> yeah. There's, there's a formula. Um, uh, there's a word that only Luke uses. In fact, it's the only place that it occurs uh, in the New Testament. It's the word paradox. And Luke uses it. Uh, it it's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know where it is. 546? 526, thank you. You know, there's a story of one time Hillel pretended that he didn't know something and it was to really show his humility. So, <laughs> Yeah, if you believe that, I've got some property I want to sell you. Yeah, here it is. Um, yeah. Uh, everyone, okay, listen, you tell me who this is, okay? This is five, 526. Everyone was amazed. Who's that sound like? And gave praise to God. They were filled with awe. See, that's Luke. That's his language. And they said, we have seen paradoxa. We have seen paradoxical things today. It's not strict. It doesn't mean paradoxical. But uh, we've seen, NIV translates remarkable. Anybody else, any translations have anything else? Strange. So you don't really know, it's, it doesn't mean paradoxical. We've, we've seen things that are contrary to what we usually see is really kind of what the word, I think it must be a pretty hard word to, to understand. Um, but um, my point is, uh, after that statement is made, there's a whole series of stories of all the, these paradoxical, all these strange things that Jesus has done, uh, is doing and maybe those of us that want to re reconstruct the, the, the trajectory of the ministry, maybe this would be a good place to see if it, it starts to erode here. First thing he does is he chooses a tax collector. Now, if Jesus' story was written 300 years after, we would leave this out because that was not a good choice. Uh, in, in 32, at the banquet, and only Luke tells us it was a banquet it was a, a, a great banquet that Matthew gave. Uh, even Matthew doesn't say it was a big banquet, but Luke does. But uh, the Pharisees are upset that Jesus chooses sinners. So he, he, he picks a tax collector. He chooses sinners. 
He doesn't fast and pray like he's supposed to. See what I'm saying? Right, right after that very unusual statement with a word that never happens anyplace else, there's this whole string of stories of uh, uh, the, the blessings and the woes happen. He violates the Sabbath. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I, just, I want you to look for that. Look at that tonight. So starting at 526, uh, see if you uh, agree with me or not. If you don't, don't tell me because I don't want to know. Because I'm committed to it, whether it's true or not. Okay. I, I'm pretty much done. Um, do we do some questions now? or Yeah, let's do some questions. Uh, I'm interested, first of all, let me just ask you, have you done any thinking about what, what has kept you from knowing Jesus better? Because I would really like to hear uh, if you've had time to, I know you've been eating and talking. And, uh, anybody have any ideas? Why don't, why don't you know Jesus better? Here we go. Hold on, wait for the mic. Oh, hold on. Okay. Um, Luke tells the, um, the story about the time when uh, Joseph, Mary, and, and um, were leaving in a caravan after um, they celebrated the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. They were leaving Jerusalem. And after three days, they realized that um, Jesus wasn't with them. Right. And they went back, and they found him in the temple, and he was talking to the teachers, mm -hmm. and they were amazed um, at, at his the, questions and his answers. And yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And um, this is Jerusalem. So it was 18 years later when he's back there and he's teaching. And I wondered, I love the way you uh, reason things out. Mm. Why wouldn't they have remembered in some way how amazing this young boy uh, age 12 was, and why wouldn't they have related yeah. some of what happened there? To yeah, maybe some of them did. We, we tend to forget miracles pretty quickly. You know, I, I don't know. Like I said, uh, Hillel was there, and he would have been dead by then. Some of the older guys would have been dead 18 years later. I, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. So, there may not be an answer for that. doesn't mean it's not a great question. Uh, but I, I don't like, like you, I was always taught Jesus teaches in the temple. He's teaching these people. That's not really what Matthew says. He's, he's interacting with them. And what's happened? He's just been bar mitzvahed. you right. He's bar mitzvahed. So he, he, and that's the reason they, they lose him. See, so he's just on the line. So Mary figures he's with Joseph, and Joseph figures he's with Mary. Because he's, he's, right? Because you, before you're bar mitzvahed, you hang out with the women. And after you're the bar mitzvahed, you're a man. So you hang out with the men. I think that's, I heard that just the other day. I thought that's a pretty good reason why they lost him. But uh, what, I think what's significant is here is this very precocious young kid who is engaging with people like Hillel. I, and again, I, I just know Hillel was there. So, huh? And they're amazed, right? And that's Luke. I'm telling you what, there's a half a dozen things with each one of the gospels that are unique. And once you get them in your head, you'll hear a verse and you'll go, that's Mark. You know, if it says, and immediately they did that, it's Mark. That's his favorite word. Okay, I want to get to her because she, she has an answer to my question. Yeah. Uh, two questions. In terms of being able to read and write, what was the level of literacy with the general folks at that time and uh, when Jesus, during Jesus' ministry? And the second one is the, were the, uh, uh, the Jewish elite, the Pharisees and so forth, were they anticipating... The Pharisees aren't necessarily the elite. The Sadducees are the no. elite. The Pharisees are the back-to-the-Bible people. 
But go ahead. The, the question was, were they expecting the uh, Messiah to be d- divine, the divinity of the Messiah, or were they expecting him just to be uh, a warrior another day? Okay. Yeah, good good, good question. Uh, first, what was the stuff? I already forgot the first question. Uh, Oh, literacy. Um, well, the one thing we know about pre-70 AD synagogue, we, we know virtually nothing. We know that they had guest rooms, okay? Because you don't have inns, and when you're traveling and you're a Jew and you've got to keep kosher, you stay at the synagogue. We know that there was a provision there for the poor, and we know that kids went there and learned to read. So that's one of the things we know happened in the synagogue. Uh, we have stories in the Talmud, uh, and actually, actually Hillel's daughter, um, she, you know, that there were women who learned to read. So I think uh, literacy was, was, there was, it was a more, the Jewish community was more literate than, than, our, than they are given credit, you know, credit for. But what you got to know is that it's not Hebrew. It's, it's Aramaic that they read. It's, um, and one of the reasons we think Mark might have been useful is that he speaks probably Greek and Aramaic, and he's a handy guy to have, on, you know, on the road with Paul. Um, there's one other... No, but it's a it's a it's a more literate society than we're given than we're given uh, credit for, and, and so the Bible Jesus reads. This is another really interesting thing in understanding Jesus. Re, Jesus, they're not reading Hebrew, they're reading Aramaic, and the, and the translations that they have of the of the Hebrew Bible are they're called targums, and they're like good news for modern man. They're very free translations, and even some of the footnotes are incorporated into the text. The ideas that we have about you know, biblical authority and the, the integrity of the scripture and all that kind of stuff, that's not part of uh, having a super accurate translation. Now, they, they go for accuracy, don't get me wrong, but it's not like the, the idea of, of, of even of biblical inspiration. In Judaism, the older it is, the more inspired it is. So Torah is really inspired because Moses wrote that. And the prophets, well, that's a little... You know, that's not Moses, but, you know, that's God speaking. The wisdom writing, eh, you know, these guys are having dreams, they're writing poems. So this sort of, and this comes from rabbis. This is not me as a Christian looking, that, this is how they, they looked at their, their, their scriptures. Kind of a sliding scale of, 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 of authority. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm spinning my wheels. Oh, the second question was about uh, the Pharisees and... Oh, Messiah, Messiah. Uh, yeah, Messiah, Bill Lane would say, Messiah is a very fluid term. He says, uh, 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 you know, a, a, a fluid will take the shape of any container that it's put into. And Bill said the Messiah was like that. So we had, uh, we had a contingent that eventually became the zealot movement. Not in Jesus, there aren't really zealots in Jesus' time yet. The, mo- the movement is beginning, you know, it's beginning. In 66 is when all hell breaks loose. But... Um, uh, there are people who think that the Messiah is going to come kill the Romans. There are people who think that the Messiah is a, is a king, so he's a warrior, he's a king, and then there are people that think he's both. Uh, that th- there is not even today. There's not one Jewish opinion on what the Messiah is. So, some people in Judaism think it's not even a person; it's an age. But basically, they didn't expect him to be divine. Be what? Divine. Divine. God. Uh, well, he, they they understand that he's the son of David. So there's that, that Davidic piece, but that he's God's son, I, I'm not so sure, uh, frankly, that doesn't come to mind that anyway, anybody saw that. I don't know, does anybody have a better, um, I, I know there, were, there was the practical warrior king, set up the kingdom, uh, and Jesus seemed to fit some of the things. In John, they're going to make him king by force after he feeds the 5,000, and if he'd done that, that, the Romans would have killed all of them, because that happened before 
in the, in the wilderness. The Romans had wiped out other people. It started movements in the wilderness. Um, yeah, yeah. No, he didn't, no. Yeah. He wanted to do his father's will. That's why, that's why he's come. And his father's will is uh, obviously the cross. But yeah, I don't have a, other than that, that's kind of what I know about that. Whether there were divine associations, I don't, I'm, not sure, I'm not so sure. I don't want to stand up here and say if I'm not, not sure. But I can tell you that even today in Judaism, there is this, you, you pick what the Messiah is. But I do know uh, reform, a lot of the reformed Jews think it's just an age. It's not even a person. So they are looking for Messiah. In fact, there's a couple of rabbis that they say are the Messiah. The Lubavitcher rabbi is a person who they say is the Messiah. Unfortunately, he died. And uh, so that's not good. But if you go to Israel now, there are pictures of this guy everywhere. It's the Lubavitcher rabbi. He's kind of scary looking. And, and not everyone who follows him thinks he's the Messiah, but there are a lot of people who think he's the Messiah. And when you come into the airport in Tel Aviv, there is a table of followers of the Lubavitcher, and they'll give you information, and they think he's the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, this lady had to answer. Yeah, I wanted to hear her answer. I'm sorry. Very Lucan. We have to hear the ladies' answers on these things, because she'll get it when none of us men get it. (laughs) Well, it's actually a question I've done a lot of thinking about, so I've cheated by coming, Mm -hmm. coming with that question. But I think that for me, part of my struggle has been that I've been in faith traditions that put a lot more emphasis on Paul and doctrine. Sure. Me too. And, um, and less emphasis on Jesus as a person. And maybe even sometimes more emphasis on the cross and the value of the cross than the value of Jesus as a person who carried out his fullness on the cross. And so, um, I, and I go back to John, I think it's five, where Jesus chastises the Pharisees and says, you search the scripture because you think you'll find eternal life in them, but you don't have to love God in your hearts. And I think that, that sometimes it's, been, it's easier to, not just eternal life like the plan of salvation, but just even the right way versus the right way to think and the right way to act yeah. versus, the, versus let's celebrate the person yeah. and the nature. Yeah. So that's, well, I think that's probably me, is less celebration of the person of Jesus through the Gospels. Well, this has just happened to my daughter. My daughter Maggie's 23 years old, and we, she grew up in a church that I helped start that was a Presbyterian church, great, great church, but very focused on sound doctrine. You've got to get it right. And suddenly over time, she really thought, I'm saved by believing the right things. I mean, I'm, you, I've got to be right. And um, we, uh, for various reasons, we, we don't go to that church anymore, not necessarily bad. But uh, of all places, she starts going to this huge Southern Baptist church, last place in the world. I grew up in Southern Baptist church, don't get me wrong. Both of my grandfathers were Southern Baptist preachers. One of them was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the other one edited the Baptist hymnal. So I'm as Baptist as it gets, okay. But I would never go to a 6,000-member Baptist church. That's just not my idea of a good time. So that's where she goes. And she comes back from their youth group, and she goes, Dad, I don't understand it. Every time I go, the pastor says exactly what I need to hear, and I don't know how he's doing it. Will you come with me and help me figure it out? I said, sure. So Tuesday night, I'm there with all the college kids. You know, their music is, you know, blaring and all the rest. And then Mike Glenn, the pastor, starts preaching, and it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the person of Jesus 
And the idea is that you need to decide and respond to the, I mean, it's what Dr. Graham, whole ministry about. This, this is who this person is. What are you going to do about it? You know, and, and it changed her life. As opposed to, and again, I'm not being anti-anybody. Please don't, please don't think that I would, I would do that because I love the Presbyterian church. Presbos are great. But um, she thought it was all about having the right ideas and it wasn't about this person. And I'm seeing my 23-year-old daughter fall in love with Jesus. Yeah, and he is this incredible person and that's, and that's kind of what I'm doing all over again at 60 is asking myself, who is this person that says, follow me? What are the non-negotiables, right? What are the non-negotiables? I think that's a great question. Yeah, uh, so anyway, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And, and, but along with that, the Bible says, preserve sound doctrine. So doctrine is important, theology is important. I'm not, but, uh, but why is, is the person of Jesus not the absolute center that all of that comes out of? That's, I think I could almost be dogmatic about that. You know, it's, it's, and, and, and Jesus didn't say, follow, I've got this new, new version of Judaism. Come on, you know, accept that. Or I've got, you know, this denomination or this, he doesn't, he says, follow me. So that's, that's what turned me around four or five months ago. I heard that follow me and I thought, what does that mean? Who's me? You know, and he's this person, again, it's pretty clear in the gospel. He's this person whose, his lordship is absolute right? It's easy to be a Christian, just cost you everything, but it's easy. You know, he's this person who's at, whose lordship is absolute, and you know, I'm, that's what I'm trying to come to grips with, but I find him absolutely fascinating. He's an absolutely fascinating person. Yeah. Yes. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Michael, your question about uh, what keeps us from knowing Christ better, uh, I'm looking at Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 18, where John, the, uh, John the, uh, the Baptist has to come back and ask Jesus, who are you? And this is an example to me of... From prison? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's a, it's a personal emotional application because he should get it, okay? Absolutely. And the question is, why doesn't he get it? And, and so, as I apply that to me, the more I study the scriptures... You soak up the word of God, and the word of God can puff you up. Uh, but I look at him, and, and Jesus says, uh, "Blessed is the man who that does, does not that does not stumble at how I do my business." Mm-hmm. So I apply myself to John the Baptist in my studies and say, "Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? Mm-hmm. You're healing all these people, and I'm your cousin, and you're leaving me rot." Yeah. in this prison. So for me, that's my emotional battle yeah. to say, Lord, this is why I struggle with knowing you better because I'm offended at times how you do, who do business with yeah. me. Amen. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I, hold, I wrote a record called Scandal on about that. I mean, I beat, I beat that like a drum. My wife said, would you please start talking about something else? Because like for five years, the scandal of the gospel, okay, here, Jesus failed to meet the expectations of everyone who was ever close to him. Okay, ask yourself this question. Who shouldn't have been offended by Jesus? Who leapt up, who leapt inside his mother's womb when he got close to Jesus? I mean, he's a, you know, he's like a fetus. Jesus is a zygote at this point, right? John, 
Who hears the voice of God? Who sees God descend? You know, who's the first one to recognize the dignity of you? John the Baptist. What happens? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? Do you ever think he thought he'd end his life having his head chopped off and given to a dancing girl? Okay, next person. Who's the, who's the next person who should have been offended? How about Mary? Virgin birth. I mean, you know, if anybody knew about it, it was Mary. Mark 3. You know, she thinks he's out of his mind. He's not eating. You know, this, who is this? I don't know you anymore. What's, what's happening to you? You're not eating. See? Yeah, he fails to meet the expectations of everyone who ever got close to him. Not because there's anything wrong with him, but because their expectations are wrong. Yeah, and, 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 and the, the Bible says he will be a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Matthew says, anyone who stumbles on this stone will be broken. He, the stone falls and will be ground to powder. I mean, becoming a follower of Jesus means brokenness. You're going to be broken. You're either going to stumble on the stone or it's going to fall on you. You choose, see? It's a, that's a huge, I think that's a huge thing. Of, and I haven't thought about incorporating that in this follow me business, but that's part of the follow me business. Take up your cross. Let me say goodbye to my parents. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, this 35 years of ministry, I have struggles all, with all my kids and my wife. We've all struggled with this, being gone so much. You know, my, my oldest son who struggles with depression came to me and said, look, it's been really hard for us that you've been gone so much. He's, I'm not mad, I just need to tell you that. And I read Jesus saying, you know, and you got folks on the family and, you know, we got <laughs> all that kind of stuff. But the other side of it is, let me say goodbye to my family. No, you follow me. Absolute lordship. Absolute lordship. Now, I'd like to think that me being a follower of Jesus makes me a better husband. I'd like to think that, but I've been, I've been away from my wife as much as I've been with her for the last 35 years. And I say that, I don't say that proudly. I mean, that's just... And here's the interesting thing. My wife grew up, her father was military. Uh, he was in Korea and Vietnam, and he would be gone for a year. And so when we got married, I thought, well, this is perfect. You're used to being people. You're used to having people being gone, so this will be easy for you. No, guess what? This means you're, you're more wounded. You're already wounded by the fact that the man who should have loved you was gone all the time. So the same thing happened. My, youngest, my oldest daughter just married a guy who's a sound technician on the road all the time. Well, I thought, well, that's great. Katie's used to me being gone all the time. So Stephen, her husband, no, 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 no. No, it doesn't work that way. She's been more wounded by the fact that I've been gone so much. So now she's married to a guy who's wounding her in the same way. What do I do? What do we do? God have mercy. I'm not saying I regret being gone. I mean, I'm, so, I'm sorry for what's happened, but I feel like I, w I was being obedient. Next. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was wondering, um, obviously Luke wrote Acts as well. Yes. And so, were you going to talk any, I was wondering when you were talking about major themes, his view of prayer and the Holy Spirit. Yep. Are you going to look at that any through yep. this? Okay. That's yep. Yeah, and that's and 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 you you never read Luke without having Acts in mind, right? And and one of the things you'll notice when you read Luke tonight <laughs> is that the Holy Spirit's a bit. It's a big deal. The Holy Spirit's a big deal. Well, it's we're being told this story by the guy who tells us in Acts two about the Holy Spirit coming, so he's very aware of it, and it, it gets it goes back into the ministry and prayer. Luke is very interested in prayer. I think one reason because he's a doctor. Most good doctors pray a lot. But I also think, um, um, oh, what was I going to say? But you see prayer is unique in Luke. Only Luke says that the transfiguration, that happened while Jesus was praying. 
Yeah, right, right. So there's, there's, a, there's that emphasis on prayer uh, that's, that's unique to Luke. And that's another one of those things, once you hear it, you'll go, oh, that sounds like Luke. Yeah, what in, in, uh, in, in, uh, is in Mark, he prays three times. In Luke, he prays before he does anything important. Before he picks the disciples, he prays all night. And he usually prays all night long. Yeah. I, if I can get a good, you know, 20, 30 seconds, you know, I feel like I'm, <laughs> I feel like God should really be impressed that I'm on his team, right? Yeah. And the son of God prays all night long. Uh. Yes, ma'am. Um. We've, we've heard and I've understood that men had uh, training from the time they were very young in the scriptures. But what kind of training, what kind of preparation would have enabled Mary to be able to receive what the angel Gabriel was telling her was lying ahead of her? Yeah, I, there's no answer to that question that I know of. She, she's, any she's, training in the scriptures? Did women have? Any yeah, kind of? women. Yeah, yeah. When there, women were trained. It's not. It was not a consistent thing. But we do have women that that read, and 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 studied studied Torah. I I submit to you. I mean, that can I be real honest with you? The the Catholics make too much of Peter, and we don't make enough of him. The Catholics kind of make too much of Mary, and we don't make enough of her. Mary was a remarkable person, you know, and, and you see it. Um, I, the, the, the intimacy between, especially like in Cana, I, I love the story, you know, they're out of wine, right? Um, I, I don't really need to get involved. It's not my time yet. She tells the, the slaves, do whatever he tells you. She knows that didn't mean no, Right? Because they have this kind of they have this kind of relationship. They are very, you know, very close. Of course, we know nothing about Joseph and, and Jesus. We assume or presume he died. You know, we, we just don't know. But Mary is a remarkable person. Look what all she gave. You know, a sword will pierce your your own soul too. She's a yeah. And 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 along the way, I would like to recover kind of a you know. Again, I'm not I'm not bashing Catholicism or Protestantism, but I just think we've sung too far. You know, uh, I think in, in my Protestant, the reason I got interested in Peter, I wrote a book about him, is that I grew up thinking Peter was a buffoon. But then I read the Bible not in Sunday school voice anymore. And I found this really complex, remarkable person. So I think Mary's like that. But, but the, the truth is we just don't know anything about her. We know virtually nothing about Mary. She was willing. Yeah, absolutely. Her heart was totally surrendered to the right. Lord. Behold the slave and the master, you own me. Yeah. Why do you own me? Because you bought me. I, I, I belong to you. Yeah, but we do have those wonderful glimpses. Very human. I think that Jesus, 12 years old, that Luke, that Luke tells us, I think that's Mary at her most human. Why have you treated us like this? Right? That's, that's a mom. She's really being mom at that point. But the, the, the Cana, the, wedding, the, the, the changing of the water into wine, uh, I see that. Is, is the best little window into this relationship that she has with her son. You know, she knows that that didn't mean no. She knows, he, she has confidence that he's going to do something. Of course he does, because she knows him. And I hope I'm not squeezing that too dry or taking, you know, or reading in, into that passage, but I do love that passage. And, and the only other really time we have Mary is in front of the cross. She and the women are there and they faithfully, they're the witnesses, not the men. The men, we, we, uh, 
we uh, gave up being having that uh, privilege. But the women are the witnesses. They see him. They stand. They see him crucified. They see him buried, and they, they're the ones that get to see the resurrection. That's the women. So, ladies, pat yourself on the back. Peter. Peter looks at the empty tomb and walks away, wondering to himself what had happened. You know. Well. And you know what, guys? We were done the same thing. No one gets up from... I worked at a funeral home when I was in high school. Have you ever seen a corpse? There's no way they're getting up. I'm not kidding. You see a, you see a dead body, there is no way they're getting up again. So Peter goes, well, gee, I wonder what happened. Yeah, yeah. In Herod's temple, the, uh, there was no um, Ark of the Covenant. No. So what did the high priest do when he went in there on the Day of Atonement? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure it's in the Talmud, but I just don't know. He, he, he did it. I mean, he, he did his, his thing. But there, there's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no, the Spirit leaves in the time of Ezekiel. It's an empty room. Josephus tells us that, and the Talmud says that. It's an empty room. So the, it makes you, it's a completely different view than of Herod's temple. Because I grew up in, this, in Sunday school thinking Herod's temple was like Solomon's temple, and you know, they have the crook. If Zachariah isn't ritually clean, the Holy Spirit's going to kill him and they're going to have to drag him out. No, that's not, that's not what it's like. But there are, the, there are the faithful country priests like Zachariah. There's about 14,000 of them who, who I think carry on the tradition and are, you know, the sons of Levi. But then you got the Sadducees. They just bought it from the Romans. You know, it's very, it's, uh, th- there's a story in the Talmud of the Sadducees closing the temple early one day so they could go watch a horse race. That's, that's the temple observance in Jesus' day. Judaism is broken. Judaism is broken. And, uh, and I think maybe that explains why someone like John the Baptist, people really respond. They're, they want, you know, they're jaded about the old cult. There's a, there's a story in the Talmud of the high priest walking uh, down the street in Jerusalem, and he's got a crowd of people following him. And Johanan and Zachai, the rabbi, the Pharisees walking the other way, and as they pass, the people that are following the high priest peel off and they follow the rabbi. And it's, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it's this story that shows, you know, the people finally, you know, the Pharisees, Judaism now is Phariseeism, right? No more temple. After 70, Judaism becomes Phariseeism. Uh, I had a friend who was at a meeting with uh, Bush too. Uh, interfaith meeting and my friend's best friend Scott Rowley who's an affirmation junkie like me Bush had just confessed his alcoholism and and uh, my friend said well well, that's okay President Bush Uh, I'm a recovering Pharisee well there's a rabbi at the end of the table and he held up his hand and said I am a Pharisee (laughs) that's his identity we're Pharisees because think of it what do you got no you got no more temple got no more priests right that's over not, not more Essenes. The Romans crucified all the Essenes. They're gone. All you got is Pharisees. That's a, and, and they go to the Romans and say, we are no threat to you. And that's what Judaism is now. It's Phariseeism. Pretty cool. Yeah, I just want to ask the question, what about the Magnificat? Where did Mary get the words to say those things. Uh, Holy, Holy Spirit, but you, okay, here, this ties into your question. The Magnificat is, has all kinds of ties back to uh, the Old Testament and the Psalms. So you can take it two ways. You decide. Is the Holy Spirit inspired to sing those things? Or is she a person who's so familiar with the Scripture, when she sings, she sings bits and pieces of the Psalms. You decide, you know. 
amazed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.